Holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let all the congregation say, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. I love that. How many of you glad to be here today? I am so, so glad to be in the house of the Lord with each and every one of you guys. It's amazing. Great time last night. Serve team, you guys did an absolutely awesome job. We had over 200 folks show up for our screen on the green. So, amen. Give them a hand. That was all word of mouth this time. We're going to do that again. And when the evening temperatures, God just showed out for us. We've not had any, even any inkling or a possibility of any rain for weeks, and then we set this, and then the, all week long, I'm like watching the weather every day because they kept saying it was going to rain on Saturday, and I said, now, Lord, I know, I know a lot of folks are praying for rain, but you get it done by Thursday and wait till Sunday or something. <laughs> and in faith, I kept the top off my Jeep all week long. <laughs> this morning, they had to go move it under the, the, the cover over there because I still had the top off. <laughs> so thank you, Andy, for doing that for me. Um, wow. Just such an amazing time to be able to meet some of you for the first time last night. And let me just say this. I'm, I'm an accessible guy. I'm not a pastor that can't be grabbed a hold of. I used to get out in the foyer and try to meet folks, but our crowds are growing so much that it bottlenecks that thing, and people are standing there going, I can't get out of here. <laughs> and so we, we, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm hanging around in here. I'd love to, to meet you. I'll try my best to get around and, and met a lot of new folks last night that have been coming the last two or three, four weeks. And it is just so awesome to uh, be able to meet some other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Uh, met a couple, Hayden and Rachel. He, Hayden is from South Africa. And uh, great to have Hayden here with us. I don't know if they're here this morning. But anyway, great. Just meeting all different kinds of folks that have been coming for a while uh, praising God that Henry Stewart got a job. Where's Henry? You over here? Amen. Um, just want you guys to know that I have already started in this whole growth phase. I already have a bodyguard. Um, not that I would need one, but I already have a bodyguard, and he's in the back. Mike Boatman got his black belt yesterday. <laughs> After four and a half hour test, a grueling test, they would have to be strapping me up with the black belt after four and a half hours. So, <laughs> uh, it just somebody does an accomplishment like that, I just got to stop and say, hey man, thank you for the example of perseverance, of just not quitting. That's huge. And, and I, I know that God is moving in some powerful ways in every one of your lives. I'm thanking God for the praise that's in the house. Such an amazing, let me just tell you this. You have so much to do. You have a part in what we actually experience in the tangible presence of God. Because the Bible says in Psalm 22, verse 3, You are holy, O Lord, who inhabits. It literally in the Hebrew, it means to join or to marry, to sit down, to abide, to dwell with. You are holy, O Lord, who inhabits, dwells with, abides, marries yourself to the praises of of your people. So when we come in with our hearts of expectation and we just abandon everything and we just begin to sing to God with all of our hearts and it's not about being in tune, it's not about you know whether it's perfect harmony, it's just about a heart. It's about coming up out of your heart, a love for God, a hunger for him. It's coming up out of the depths, out of the well of your spirit. When a congregation gets in a place of unity like that, miracles happen because God shows up. And I just want you to know that's what I'm expecting. 
I'm expecting the presence of the Lord to be poured out in this house in a way like we have never, ever, ever seen it before. And that's because our hearts are hungering after him. And in faith, we're reaching up and taking hold of that unlimited power of God. Can I have an amen? All right. Uh, this morning, we are in number four of this series called Prodigal God. And if you're reading the book, you probably thought, man, Pastor Michael said this was in his top 10 books. And I don't know, I'm just, it's not, it's not gelling with me yet. And if you've stayed with me till this point, the book has grabbed you because it's this chapter, it's the third chapter that we're in. Actually, my messages are one ahead because I used the introduction to preach a message just to give you an overview of the whole chapter, rather the whole pro, the parable. And we're actually in chapter three in the book this week. And so uh, as you get ready for your life groups, by the way, amazing testimonies coming from all these life groups. It is so huge what God is doing. Let's give the Lord a hand for that. Like any good book, especially uh, a novel or if it's fiction or whatever, sometimes it takes you a, a, a number of pages to get into it before it grabs you. And, and the author, Tim Keller, who's a tremendous, tremendous man of God, have a huge respect for him. He's laid some foundation in the first two chapters, and now it's really beginning to just pick, pick you up, and you're running along with him. And, and this book is just going to pick up the pace in this marathon. It's almost going to feel like a sprint from this chapter on. And I'm excited. Uh, Alex is going to pick up. I'm going to hand the baton to him at the end of the message today, and he's going to preach next Sunday. I'm excited about that because we are teaming. We are team preaching uh, in how we're bringing this thing and what it's going to do here at the church. And I'm just so excited that we're actually beginning to grasp what it means to walk and to live the gospel. Everybody say the gospel. You know, the gospel is, is a word that William Tyndale, when he translated the Bible into English, this was in the 13th century, he was looking for a word that would speak to the common man. And actually the word gospel is the idea of a town crier who's bringing good news. And it was, it was a very, very common word. It was, not, it was not a high theological, intellectual word. It was a word that was used when people said, have you heard any gospel? These were the folks in the villages of England. And the gospel, the, 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 the town crier would bring the good news. And he would stand out and declare to the city on the, 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 the city square what was happening. And the good news was the gospel. And that was a very common word that Tyndale used. We've carried it now for about 700 years because this thing has been transliterated through gospel to gospel. And it's a whole different sound in the way that they said it then, but that's where that thing came from. Came from. It was a, a common word in the streets that meant, man, some good life-changing news has come about. And I want you to know that this thing that we call the gospel is a life-changing message. It will get down into your heart and your soul, and it'll mess with you. It will fuss with you. It is, it is a comprehensive message. It's not just about giving you a ticket to heaven so that you'll be taken care of in the sweet by and by, but it has everything to do and implications that deal with the nasty now and now, the nitty-gritty now and now that I'm living my life in. Somebody, anybody thankful for that? It, it, it's not just about a ticket to heaven. I'm going to take the time this morning to read from a different translation. This is really my favorite. It's, uh, it's a paraphrase which means it's not a literal translation, but it's dynamic. That means it's put into something phrase by phrase so that we can understand in our 21st century culture. Eugene Peterson's a great Presbyterian author, writer, professor of languages, pastor, and he wrote the message a number of years ago. In Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, listen. Then he said, there was once a man who had two sons. Everybody say two sons. Yes. The younger said to his father... 
Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. Now notice, it wasn't just the younger brother who got something, but the older brother actually got some property too, right there on the spot. We missed that. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. They're undisciplined and dissipated. Everybody say drunk. I mean, it's really dissipated is one of those big words. It just means three sheets to the wind as he's gone. He wasted everything he had. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, he makes it plain. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. Hello. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and he went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. I love that. The son started his speech. He'd prepared this in the pig pen. He was getting ready, going through it. Point A. Father, I have sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. Getting ready for point B, and the father interrupted him. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring. Everybody say authority. authority. The family ring is the crest. It's economic authority once again restored. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, then get a grain-fed heifer. And roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. Everybody say, we're going to have a good time. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I grew up around here and hanging out with all my Kojic friends, Church of God in Christ. There was a song they used to sing. I'd go hang out because I had to get a little bit of that once in a while. They said, we're going to have a good time. Come on in this house. We're going to have a good time. Come on in this house. We're going to have a good time. Come on in this house. Come on in this house of the Lord. Y'all are too white. The next, the next verse said, why don't you? Come on. Come on in this house. All right, you got the idea. <laughs> I just think church ought to be fun. I just think around here, black folks got a better idea about what that means than anyway, anyhow. All right. Where am I? Yeah, I'm in the house, man. <laughs> I am so lost right now. <laughs> My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. How many of you know you got a reason to celebrate this morning? You, you, you got breath in your lungs. The bills might not be paid yet, but you got another day. Jesus has granted you another day to be alive. And most of you woke up in your right mind this morning. <laughs> I'm having a good time whether y'all are or not. And they begin to have a wonderful time. 
All this time his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef. I'm telling you, it's Arkansas, folks. I'm telling you. <laughs> I posted yesterday during that. I said, there's an Arkansas barbecue going on and black bears on the menu. <laughs> My friend, who is the U.S. congressman from Texas, his name is Bill Hammond, he said, okay, funny, but hotty toddy, y'all, my wife is a rebel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of that. Okay. Everybody say barbecued beef. Because he has him home safe and sound, the older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. Do you hear this legalistic, I've been slaving for you. Look, I've done all the right things. I'm religiously, legalistically keeping everything that I'm trying to please you. Do you hear that? He says, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours, he didn't even say my brother, he said this son of yours. How many of you know you can be a pretty good son and a bad brother? That's what the elder brother is. Not a good son. I mean, he's a pretty decent son in terms of outward appearances, but he sure needs some lessons in being a good brother, a good big brother. This son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores and shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours but this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Bow your heads with me, please, for a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we come before you this morning, and we acknowledge that we are nothing without you. God, we thank you that every one of us in this room who knows you as your child, as your daughter, as your son, we've all come at some point like the young bro younger brother. But God, sometimes in our spiritual journeys, we lose the awareness of where you have delivered us, the pit that you dragged us out of. And we can so quickly become a Pharisee in just a matter of hours. And we can start to judge those that are coming in. God, forgive us this morning. People into the sound of my voice sitting in this room are in all different kinds of places, stations in life, circumstances, battles, struggles. Jesus, you see them, and I pray right now that you take the words that I speak. Let me speak as the oracles of God. In the name of Jesus, I can't do anything apart from you, but I can do all things through you. Strengthen me today. Strengthen the hearing ears of your people. Open the seeing eyes of your people that we can see and perceive, that we can hear and understand the word of the Lord to us as the congregation of God. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Real quickly, review this morning. Three things I want you to get. Does everybody remember what a parable is? Everybody say parabolos. Parabolos is the Greek word for parable, and very simply, it means a natural story with a spiritual meaning. Say that with me. A natural story with a spiritual meaning. Jesus speaks particularly in parables and for a very significant reason. Number two, quickly reviewing. God is all about rescuing and restoring who and what is lost. Say that with me. God is all about rescuing and restoring who and what is lost. The whole chapter of Luke chapter 15 is all about lostness. There's a lost sheep. There's a lost coin. There are two lost sons. There is a son, a prodigal who strayed, and there's a prodigal who stayed. Third point this morning in my review is that prodigal does not mean wayward. 
The, the, the superscription, the title of these things is not inspired. They've been put there by man. Unfortunately, man, probably in kind of a legalistic, pharisaical mindset, favors the elder brother because he's done the right thing. He looks good to the community. And so the whole emphasis has always been on the prodigal. We've, we've, we've singularized it. We've, we've said there's only one, and we've missed that because there are two brothers in the house, one who demands his inheritance and his right, and he leaves... And he takes it with him, and he comes back broken because of the experience he has in the world. But then there's another one who's in the house, but he doesn't have a relationship with the father that he's so struggling to legalistically live and please. He's done it all out of the wrong motivation. Instead of out of love, instead of out of a relationship with the father, he's done it merely to have a good facade in the community, merely to say, this is what a, a good son does. And he's lost because of it. He, he's, he's missing in the sense of having a living relationship, a, a love relationship with the father. Prodigal does not mean wayward. What does it mean? Prodigal means extravagant. Everybody say extravagant. And we've learned out of this book, this amazing book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God, is that really the one who is the most prodigal in the story is the father because the father so extravagantly gives and, and forgives not only reaching to the younger son to restore him, but reaching to the older brother right in the house with him, saying, come on, man, have a relationship with me. It's not about all this stuff. You, everything I've got is yours. Man, it's, I want your heart. I want to know you, son. It's so easy to label and judge the person who goes by the route of the world and who gets trapped in the gutter. And it's something entirely different to stand literally in our, dressed in the self-righteousness of our own filthy rags and think that we're accepted by God when we don't even realize that we're covered with the same spirit and ascent. It may not be pig poop, but it's church poop. It's legalistic poop. And it will never favor God because it all is a stench in his nostrils. Come on, say amen. I know I'm preaching real good right now. Hear the word of the Lord. The parable is about two lost sons. And I've got a little diagram, a little chart that I want you to fill out in your notes this morning. Because we're going to look at two different ways. These sons actually represent two different kinds of approaches to life. These are actually two different ways that people go out pursuing happiness. They, 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 they look trying to find, and, 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 and some of this is tied up a little bit in our, in our American ideal. The, 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 the founding fathers, actually Thomas Jefferson, who penned most of the Declaration of Independence with the great help of a number of uh, philosophers and uh, ideologists of the time, he quoted a lot of John Locke, and there was a lot of quotations from the New Testament and biblical assertions that were included in that. He talks about, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? And actually, it's the John Locke original quote was life, liberty, and property. Let's say property. Very much an old world view of your life being tied, just like it is here in this Luke 15 passage. The family name was tied to the land that was owned. It was very much, even as Tim Keller shared in, in the last chapter, that the land, very much like that old Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, Oklahoma where the wind goes dancing across the plains. The land is us, and we are the land, the people moving across the Midwest said. 
And there was an identification with the land. And so when the father was willing to give up, he was literally saying, I am losing my standing in the community because I love you so much. In the very same way that God the Father willingly and the Son willingly responded and laid down everything that he had in heaven and in his eternal glory, laid all of those divine attributes down and came down, dressed himself as a man, humbled himself as a servant, literally in the likeness and took upon him death. He loved us so much. He gave up everything that his name was tied to. He stooped very low, the Bible says, and he got up underneath every burden that is in this room to pick it up and to lift you up. He loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you right where you are. These two brothers, the very first one, the lifestyle is all about self-discovery. The younger brother is basically throwing off all convention. He's, he's throwing off everything that would restrict him or restrain him. The, the older brother gives us the picture of what is expected in a community. It's the community standard. It's basically moral conformity. So we have a younger brother who is living without law. We have a, an older brother who is living by the law. Let's just talk about it in the sense of Community expectations and standards and mores, morals is another way to say it. The younger brother is about just throwing off all convention, every cultural expectation whatsoever. Live and let live. Who are you to say what is truth for me? I need to discover what truth is for me. Now, this story is so appropriate for the day in which we live in the 21st century because we are we are being marinated as an American culture in the, in the ideology of relativism. Now, forgive me if I get a little philosophical with you this morning, but I want you to know that the Bible has a bearing on how we see the world. It's called a worldview. Everybody say a worldview. This is important because if we're going to be biblical Christians, we have to learn how to think biblically. We need to be able to, as Francis Chan says, insert our name right into the text and see our life living according to biblical standards. See our life living according to the expectations of God. And that's not just the outward conformity of the elder brother, but it's out of a spirit of love that responds from the heart. The younger brother is all about self-discovery. He goes his way. He, he's basically claiming that he's spiritual. He just doesn't want anything to do with any kind of organized religion. And he's touching God in all kinds of ways. And with a little bit of smoked cannabis and with a little bit of LSD on a spiritual trip. And he's out there experiencing sexually. And he's experiencing the whole revolution of throwing off everything that has to do with an expectation or a law. And it's all in the name of finding true happiness. And in the midst of that, his life is broken. Because even if you throw off all law, there is still this thing that, that God calls sin. And this morning, as we look at that, we're going to really peel the onion back another layer because sin is so much more than the outward external. It's so much more than just the keeping of a few rules or some commandments. Because the elder brother is good at that. He's, he, he can put on a show, man. He, 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 he can do the very best in terms of looking good and smelling right and voting correctly. He's a card-carrying member of the moral majority while the younger brother is a card-carrying member of the ACLU. 
Now, I'm talking a little bit politically this morning because I want you to realize that neither one of those as a, an end in itself can save this nation, whether it is, it is throwing off all uh, legalistic expectation and be, becoming completely progressive or if it's running back to this moral conformist idea. Let me tell you, you can be a really good tighten up your, the, the, the knot on your tie and vote Republican in every election. You can be as lost as a goose. It's neither one of those. It's not the Pharisees on one side or the Sadducees on the other. It's not the elder brother or the younger brother. It's Jesus standing in the middle going, this is the way. Walk ye in it. To put this in theological terms, the younger brother gives us what we call license. It's the idea that, hey, I'm the father's son I can just basically do anything I want to because after all, God loves everybody and it's the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It's all about this great, big, wonderful idea that, you know, God really doesn't care. This man has put all these expectations on us and it's throw all of that to the wind. Who cares? In the middle of all of that, he's broken. He wastes it. He extravagantly lives and he's a spendthrift and he's out there doing, experiencing. He's living as an existentialist on the cusp of reality and he's experiencing every drug and sex trip he possibly can. And in the middle of that, he comes to his senses broken and he says, if I'll just go back home, even the guys who are working on the hourly wage at my dad's farm eat better than this. I can't, I was born to live better than this. And the crazy thing about it is the, the guy that's out here experiencing sin and broken down because of the, the wages that the devil always pays on time. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The devil is a paymaster and he never misses a payday. And it's so amazing that in that kind of an atmosphere that people who experience the depths of that can experience a kind of brokenness that allows God to get in and change their hearts more quickly than the dude who was born in the pew and thinks that he's got it all under control in his own strength. I, I, I want you to hear this this morning because on one side we have the younger brother who gives us license. We can just do anything and get away with it. We know that's not true. On the other side, we've got this legalism. And let me tell you, the South baby is steeped in it. I mean, we... We, we dip it in the oil and we roll it in the crumbs and we, we fry up our, our, our gospel fried chicken in legalism. It's all over the place. And that's the thing that I'm desperately crying out, trying to break the back of that spirit. Because if we as a church can get this thing called the gospel... And if, and if every one of you in here in this room who have at one time been a younger brother and God's delivered you from a pit, name it. I don't care what the pit is. It's so long as that, that we can keep letting some brothers that are just fresh out of the pit still got the stank on them from the pit. If we can let them come on in and we can love them and we can receive them. And because we've been cleaned up a little while, don't start to get ourselves dressed in our self-righteous rags of legalism. And I'm telling you, God will use this church to shake this county and they'll hear about it around the world. My pastor, Dr. Kelly Varner, one of the finest theological minds I've ever encountered in my whole life, said it this way. He said, legalism will kill you, but license will kill you quicker. Those are two ditches. We got to get up and walk on the road 
Are you hearing what I'm telling you this morning? This is the ditch of legalism on one side that I work to earn and to merit and to hopefully gain the favor of God by doing everything in the right way. There's a ditch on the other side of the road that I can get sloppy muddy in and every kind of experience, be it drug or alcohol or sexual or, or, or any other kind of thing that you want to call it, it's over here on this side. And the whole point is that will kill me, but this will kill me quicker. I want to tell you, both of these are wrong. And Jesus Christ is standing, as he always is, as an alternative, as a third option. Between Pharisees on one side, who are the fundamentalists of his day, and the Sadducees on the other, who are the modernist progressives. Don't believe in any miracles. You know, whatever will be, will be. Let it be. Jesus is standing in the middle. In the very same way that we are to call conservatives and liberals, be it politically whether we're to call self-discoverers or legalists, moral conformists, we're to stand in the middle and go, that's not the way, this is not the way, this is how Jesus did it. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Come on, somebody. That's the word of the Lord. The message of Jesus' parable is that both of these approaches are wrong. Charles Dickens great author in the Victorian period, wrote a book called The Tale of Two Cities. It opens like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. The best of times, the worst of times. He's talking about London and Paris. This is following what we call the Age of Enlightenment. When the whole world gets the apple cart upset away from a classical worldview and we basically enthrone reason as a god. And we've been gripped, drunk from the, the dregs of this now for three centuries. And we are in the 21st century, what theologians and philosophers are calling a postmodern period. And let me tell you why it's so amazing. Because in this period, we're no longer asking the question of modernism from 1950 up until about the 90s, where it's, do you believe in God or not? It's no longer a question of theism or atheism, but now it's a question of polytheism. It's which God do you believe in? Are you hearing me? Now, I know that this is a little bit different than the way I've been preaching, but I, I want to grab your heart this morning, not only to put something in your heart to inspire you, but I want to get something in your mind because that will walk with you when you think you've lost the inspiration. Come on, somebody. It's not just about reviving the heart. It's about reforming your thinking. Because if I don't teach you and train you to have a biblical worldview, and all I've done is just given you an exciting experience, that thing will wear out. Come on, somebody. It's not about how high you jump today and how loud you shout. It's about how straight you walk tomorrow. And so it's all about 
changing. It's about transforming our mind by, the, by renewing it in the word of God. Romans 12, 2. Paris is gripped. It's, it's the time of the French Revolution. It is a bloodbath. The guillotine is coming down every day upon citizens that are being reported. They're all about throwing off all conformity. It is the pure, unadulterated, self-discovery message of the, of the younger brother. No more law. Robespierre is the prophet and Danton. Now, forgive me. i got to ease back here because, see, this is my favorite period of history. You know I've, I've got a couple of degrees in history and working on another one. And, and when I taught this at a state for three semesters, uh, they, I had some folks tell me, man, I feel like I've been to church. <laughs> and if you think history is not important, just ignore it and then just repeat it. Be an idiot. Paris is ablaze. They're throwing off everything that has to do with law. And London seems to be at the, just a few miles away. The same press toward life, liberty, and property, the pursuit of happiness is going on. And Benjamin Franklin is visiting Paris. And they're screaming in the streets, liberty, egalite, fraternity, liberty, equality, and brotherhood. But yet in the midst of that brotherhood, they've lost all sense of anything of the law of God and they've thrown it all off, literally changed from a seven-day work week to 10 days and they erected a, a temple to the goddess reason. Before it was over with, they, they started the whole calendar over again, trying to move away from the BCAD format and be, actually declaring during the French Revolution it was year one because they were basically flipping God off. Is that plain enough? They're basically sticking it in the face of God. And it's the ultimate ministry. It's the, the message of the younger brother. All the while in London, God has sent a man by the name of John Wesley back and forth across the great sea, the Atlantic Ocean. He's preaching in the colonies. And George Whitfield, this big, bustle, buffundo, operatic preacher, Two times the size of me. Preaching to a crowd of 30,000 people without any kind of amplification. Don't tell me there wasn't some Holy Ghost moving that day. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin in his diaries was so moved by the preaching of George Whitfield in the first great awakening that he lived the scripture. I mean, not the scripture. The diary of Benjamin Franklin says he literally emptied his purse to give an offering. And, and Franklin was not a confessing Christian, but he was moved by this preacher, George Whitfield. Historians say today that what happened in London and why London didn't burn and lose, they didn't bring their monarchy out into the streets and cut their heads off the way they did the king and the queen of France is because the gospel had penetrated the society in England and there had been a revival there and there had been an outpouring of the spirit among the Anglicans and the Methodist movement had begun and the spirit of God was moving all over the country. See, you didn't know history could be so exciting. Of course, they won't teach you that in the public schools. But I will tell you this morning why God, by his mighty hand and by the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit, holds back crazy tyrants at times from moving in while the United States has not yet fallen. And I'm crying out along with you saying, God, send revival. And it's the same thing. We've got elder brother moral conformists on one side pointing their finger in judgment, and we've got younger brothers going, get off of me, you intolerant, narrow-minded bigot. Well, the hilarious thing is, this is what is so hilarious to me, 
is that for all of the tolerance that the progressive preach, they're intolerant when it comes to somebody who disagrees with them. Ooh-wee, what's up with that? What's up with that? A couple of you got that. What am I saying this morning? It's all about grasping the gospel and having a life change. It's about a relationship. It's not about keeping a moral code. Let me tell you, I can keep the code. I can do it, baby. I was raised in church. I know how to speak Christianese better than most everybody else does. And you know what? I haven't broken any of the Ten Commandments this week. I haven't worshipped another god, number one. I haven't bowed down to an idol, number two. I haven't taken the name of God in vain. And let me tell you, that's more than just attaching a four-letter word to the backside of God. Number four, I'm in church. I'm, I'm keeping the day of worship, the sanctified day set aside, keeping it holy. Number five, I'm honoring my mother, my parents. Thank God for them. Number six, I didn't kill nobody this week. I wanted to, but I didn't. <laughs> oh, I got so tickled in my devotional this week. I was reading over there in Psalms where David said, God, I'm so tired of wringing my hands and walking the floor for all these outrageous people. And I, I sat there and laughed. I said, David, baby, I know what you're talking about. Don't even look at me in that tone of voice. You know there's somebody at work that drives you to your last nerve. <laughs> I'm having a good time. I told you I was going to. Might as well. Where was I? Six. I didn't commit adultery last week. My wife said, you better not. <laughs> she will dedicate the rest of my life to making it miserable. <laughs> Number eight, I didn't steal. Number nine, I didn't bear false witness against anybody. I didn't stand in the court of law and tell the, the mistruth or the untruth or everything but the didn't lie. And uh, to the best of my recollection, I didn't, I didn't covet anybody. They boat or they four-wheeler or their house or their neighbor's wife or... Shut up. In case you didn't hear what he said, he said, a bigger church. <laughs> and let me tell you what the brother just hit on right there. My, my toes is bloody after you said that, my brother. Because even good men who love God, who, who pastor churches, all want their church to grow. <laughs> and we, why did you say that? <laughs> I, I'm so thankful for some young champions on the front row like this. I'm really finished. This is it. Some of you said, uh-huh, I don't know. I'll see it when I believe it. <laughs> Listen to this in your notes. Sin is breaking the commands of God, but it's deeper than that. 
It's putting myself in the place of God in order to avoid God. It's what the elder brother did. He basically said, you know, I'll I'll keep everything that's expected of me so that I can maintain this whole good son persona in the community. And so dad will love me. And dad's basically going, I just want some time with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And the bottom line is this, folks. I want to tell you, God loves you in an indescribable kind of way. He's not after you how long your hair is, ladies, or whether you wear any makeup. Let me tell you, put some on. Even old barn looks better with a little bit of paint on it. Come on. I mean, let's, let's get over it. Let's get over it. It's amazing to me how we judge holiness by an out, outrageous outside standard. And isn't it amazing how they always beat up the women on it? All the little women? The, the guys can be in three-piece suits and $100, what are those handkerchiefs flowing out and hair and gosh, have mercy. I better hush or I'm going to sin right now. Men strutting around in church like a peacock and ladies wearing gunny sack dresses to church. I'm talking about my heritage now. I, I was there, done that, got the t-shirt, I can. You know what? Let me tell you something. You can be dressed in an old pair of overalls, and if your heart's clean before Jesus, that's what he's after right there. It's not about keeping it all on the outside. I can do it with the best of you, and you don't know what's going on in my heart. Jesus does. God does. He's watching everything I do, everything I say. And I can keep all those on the outside and still struggle with them on the inside of my heart. My attitudes, my thoughts, my words. I want to tell you this morning, I kept them all externally. But I can't tell you that I haven't struggled with my attitudes and my thoughts this week. And because of that, I need Jesus. Apart from Him, I am totally depraved. None righteous, no, not one. There's not an elder brother in the house good enough. Younger brothers, I don't know what you're struggling with or what you walked in, what kind of pig pen you got up out this week to show up here back at the Father's house. I want to tell you, he's running to you and he's running to embrace you and throw his arms around you and kiss you and get some clean clothes on your back and put the family ring on your finger and get some sandals on your feet. And let me just say to you, I don't have a hard time getting you guys to respond. It's those of us who quickly get grasped, gripped with this little encroaching pharisaical spirit that starts to come in. You know, God, I've been pretty good. And, you know, I really deserve. I confess to you, I have those thoughts. God, I've stood faithful here for 20 years. You want me to get real plain? God, why? Why did it take so long? If you had to beat the fire out of me because of an attitude in me, then thank you that you gave me the stick to it and to not quit until you finally did it.
I'm telling you this morning, I don't have a hard time reaching those that are coming from a place of brokenness. I'm telling you as a, as a brother who struggles with the elder brother spirit, you know what? You get saved, you get your life transformed. This thing hangs over all of us. And I have to daily wash in the water of the word and I have to apply grace generously. And I have to remind myself, God, no matter what we ever do, no matter how much I'm blessed, I am completely bankrupt before you. You said in your word, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, I'm poor. I'm poor, God. I'm poor. I'm poured out before you. I need you, Jesus.